the Author to Author podcast series with award-winning author Pamela R. Haight. Welcome to the podcast. Dalgetty Herbal Teas produce 100% natural high-quality organic teas using only the best ingredients. Available now from all major supermarkets or please visit our website at dalgetty.co. Dalgetty Herbal Teas. Good day, lovely listeners. I am your host, Pamela R. Haynes. May has been a really busy month spent crossing the T's and dotting the I's on the manuscripts of Loving the Brothers and Loving the Sisters. We are quickly moving towards publication date on the 27th of July 2022. Both books will be available for pre-order on the 30th of June 2022. I have quite a few radio appearances scheduled for June and I'm excited to talk about the themes arising from my books. My sincere thanks to poet Nia Samoa for her commissioned poem also called Loving the Sisters and to Senator Wiggins and Karen Small for writing two amazing forewords. I am deeply touched by your kind words. Big shout out to the organisers of the International Book Festival in London last weekend. I showed up just to listen and to learn, but was then invited to talk about my book journey and the podcast. I gave away loads of Dalgetty teas and made connections with many brand new self-published authors who I hope to interview for season five of the Author to Author podcast. In this episode, I interviewed Naz McNatt, author of 7,000 Miles to Freedom. Let's jump into her interview now, and I'll see you on the other side. Hi there, Naz, and how are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you for sticking with me. It's been some time since we booked, since you sent me your books, and now we're finally getting the opportunity to interview you. So thank you also for donating two copies of your book, uh, which is called 7,000 Miles to Freedom. I had eye surgery recently. And since I started your book, it was the first time I was able to look at the cover in more detail. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. So I can, um, I mean, it's a beautiful cover, ladies and gentlemen, if you decide to buy a copy of this um, um, book. And on the back, there is an illustration as well. Is that you walking across a bridge to America? Yes. So in the back, what you see is the monument um, that's in Tehran. That's like the symbol, like, you know, uh, the Eiffel Tower. So when you see this, you know, monument, you know, this is Tehran. And if you look through it, I'm going towards the Statue of Liberty. It's sad, but I'm leaving my homeland behind and walking towards the Statue of Liberty. And on the front, obviously, there's a mosque. Pictures of the girls, they both represent me. The one that, you know, has the mosque behind her with the hijab and completely covered up is me with the chains in, in, you know, my own country. And the other one is my life in United States with the Statue of Liberty again behind me and the chains are being broken and I have no cover up and I, I you know, look free. Yeah, your hair's out and everything. Yeah, it's a really, really stunning cover, the contrast. So thank you you for donating those. Um, Somebody's going to be a very fortunate um, winner of this book. I've had the opportunity to dip into it as well. So before we get there, 
if you could just tell us where in the world you're from originally and where are you based now? So I am Iranian. Uh, I was born in Tehran. I was raised in Tehran till I was 23 years old. And right now I'm based in Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles uh, when I was 23. He was 23. Okay. The book describes many, many events from your past, which we will go into. But why write about him? Um, to be honest, you know, I'm a very private person, so I don't really talk about my uh, private life, you know, in, in public a lot. But uh, when the Me Too movement happened in, in you know, America, I am in entertainment industry. So it, it kind of like made me think of the bravery of these women coming forward and risking their careers that I've worked for for years. And um, just to be honest and to tell the truth. And my friends around me kind of noticed that it, that it hit me hard and I'm very passionate about it. And they asked me some questions. So I brought up my past a little bit. And when they heard a little bit of my story, I was encouraged by many friends to write this story. And first I was resistant. I was, I didn't want to do it. I'm like, I don't want to put my life out there like this. And I don't know if I would like that and I'm ready. But one of my friends who's from Afghanistan, he mentioned something to me that he made me decide this is the right thing to do. And what he said was, this is bigger than you and you wanting to protect your yourself and your image. Um, your story can help, you know, even if it can help one girl that is in the same situation in a country like yours, if it can help one person, you've done your job. This is not about you. This is about putting the story out there to help someone. Think of yourself when you were in that situation. If you heard a story similar to yours, what you could have done with that, with that story, with that knowledge, would you have left earlier? Would you have, you know, stayed and suffered as long as you did? And that made me think, you know, it is, it is an obligation now. It is my responsibility to do this. So then I decided to write the book. So you were inspired by the Me Too movement um, initially, but have you had a previous experience of writing a book or a column or a blog? Where did you start? No, I actually, I'm not a writer. I've never written anything. In my teenage years, I love to, because I'm a very creative person, I love to write poems just for myself. It was never to be published or anything. Um, just to put my feelings, you know, on, on the paper. This was my first time writing. And uh, it was extremely, it, it was very hard. It was, you know, um, something I've never done. I'm, I'm a stylist. I'm a wardrobe stylist. So I do work in, you know, in Hollywood and um, I've had articles and blogs written about me and my work, but I've never been the one writing them. So it was very intimidating. I started slowly. I started just, you know, it, it took three years. So I started by remembering the events and then just putting it on paper. And I edited probably about, I don't know, six to 10 times. So obviously it wasn't English as my second language and it wasn't perfect, but with the help of you know, um, an editor, we just, you know, I wrote the book myself, but then when it was completed, I gave it to an editor to just correct the, you know, the grammar and, and, you know, some sentences. Yeah. So here we are, we have a book now. Wonderful. So tell me, how easy was it to write because of the nature of the book, the, the subject matter, you know, how did you protect yourself from being overwhelmed by, by writing it? It wasn't easy. It was actually um, one of the hardest 
experiences, you know, that I've had because I had to relive every single event. I had to remember it. I had to think about what the details were and when it happened, how it happened. So I had many, many times that I was writing and I had to stop because I was overwhelmed with, you know, the emotions and I was crying and I was feeling the same emotions that I was feeling when it actually happened. So you have to relive all these events again. So it was very hard at times. However, it was very therapeutic. So talking about it after so many years and having to face it, you know, now that I've, I've detached kind of from, I know that I'm not in danger anymore. And I know that this person can get a hold of me, can't hurt me anymore. I'm just looking at it from outside and dealing with it that way. It was, it was like a therapy, but it was also very hard at times to put it all down on paper and, and talk about it in such a public way. Well, yeah, I mean, hence why it took three years to um, write the book as well. Um, so going through a range of emotions. But for those of us, my listeners who haven't read the book yet, what is the book about? So it's a memoir. It's a story of, I start from when I was four years old. That's when the Iranian revolution happened, which is one of the biggest revolutions of all time. And so I talk about how, how it was growing up in a country that it is ruled by extremist Islamic leaders and how our lives change and um, how, you know, how, how, how challenging it was to grow up, especially for someone like me, who's a rebellious kid. And I just don't really go with what I'm told just because I need to know the reasoning behind it. I need, it needs to make sense to me. So I had a lot of, you know, problems with the, you know, with the government the rights as a woman, our rights were taken away from us. So we have no rights. So basically I talk about that, how it was growing up in a country like that. It's dictatorship. You have no rights. You can't be who you are. You can dress the way you want, look the way you want, speak the way you want. Everything is controlled. And how I got to, you know, to a really violent relationship, you know, how I went from my first love and having such a you know, the feelings of your first love and all those emotions to marrying this man and, you know, how the relationship became extremely violent. And uh, so he talks about domestic violence a lot. And the story uh, continues to where I I had to flee my country overnight. I had to pack a little bag and escape Iran literally overnight to save my life. And then he covers some some issues with immigration for Iranians, how I got stuck in Istanbul for for many, many months because they would not let me to come to the United States. My whole family was here to be with my family and, you know, how I finally got to the United States. So it it definitely it, it talks about the politics of Iran and, you know, how people really live under this regime, talks about, you know, the domestic violence a lot and immigration and I speak very little about my life here in the United States right now. Yeah, I mean, that's where the book starts, actually. The book starts in the States. You're at a glamorous, no, it starts in Cannes, is that right? Yes. You're at yes. a film festival. Film festival. Um, and, you know, everything is, you know, you're, you're in your, your black dress and, you know, high heels, I can remember, traveling up a staircase with um, the press being there and 
you really savoring the moment and, you know, grateful for the opportunity to be at that event and how your life had changed dramatically from where you where you started. But if we go back to where you started, you never knew a time outside before the uh, regime uh, moved in, as it were. So it was something that you grew up alongside. I never really got the understanding as to why your hair was cut at four years old. I think I was five years old. So my mom had this old school opinion and thought that if you shave, you know, your, your young kid's hair, it would grow back thicker and lush and beautiful. So as a kid, I guess I didn't have very thick hair. So my grandma told my mother that, you know, if you shave her head, the hair is going to grow back like thicker and shinier. And, you know, anyhow, that was, that was the reasoning behind it. So as a five-year-old, yeah. my mom took me to a barber shop and shaved all my head off. But what I really liked is that you used that to your advantage because you were a bit of a tomboy. Yes. And it meant that you could pass for a boy and play football outside with the other boys. Yeah. So, you know, I think I have this uh, survivor, you know, kind of energy in me from, from the beginning because... Yes, I was a tomboy. I didn't like to stay home and play with Barbies and, you know, tea sets and any of that. I, I loved football. So and I loved to be on the street and play football with the boys. That was my, you know, favorite pastime. I liked to climb the trees and just wanted to be outside. And, um, you know, the boys would not let any girls, obviously, play football with them. And once my mom shaved my head and I was very sad and I was very shy and I, I just kind of like wanted to hide and one day when I was watching the boys playing, you know, on the street in the neighborhood, I just had this idea. I'm like, why don't I, like in my five-year-old mind, I thought it's a believable thing. Why don't I just go to them and say, you know, my name is uh, Saeed, which is a boy's name, and ask them to let me play. And they would think, uh, I, so I just made up the story. I said, I'm a new boy in neighborhood, and my name is Saeed, and I would love to play. And then they obviously didn't believe me, but they you know, took pity on me and they let me play with them. So yeah, I, I turned it around as a negative experience that I lost all my hair. My, I'm like, I have this bald shaved head to at least do something that I love that I wasn't able to do before I had a shaved head. <laughs> Did it grow back thicker and shinier? And no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it's the gene, you know, either are, you know, born with great head of hair or you're not. So no, it grew back normal, but it was an experience. As I say in a book, I feel like that was one of my earliest tests in life, how to turn something negative to my advantage. The other thing that, um, I mean, describe for us then what it was like growing up in Tehran as a teenager. So as a teenager, you know, just like any teenager, you want to experiment with different things. You want to be with your friends, go to parties, experiment with makeup, different hairstyles, different fashion. And unfortunately, we weren't allowed to do any of that. So, you know, if you if we went to, you know, outside of our homes in public, we had to be completely covered from head to toe. The Iran that you see now is very different from when I grew up. So it was a lot more strict back then. Right now, I, I haven't been back in 25 years, but I look at the videos and pictures from people in Iran and I see it's not as strict as it was. So I want to like make sure people understand because I know a lot of people travel back and they're like, it's nothing like you describe. 
but I'm describing when I lived there, which was the 80s and the 90s. So it, it was really hard because I, I got thrown in jail at the age of 13 just because I had a cassette of, of like, my, I think it was like a latest album of Michael Jackson. And I was exchanging it with another neighborhood boy. He was giving me a different album. I was giving him this to listen. And I, we both got arrested and I got thrown in jail at age of 13. And, you know, if if a strand of our hair showed under the scarf, we would be arrested and thrown in jail. We couldn't have nail polish. We couldn't have makeup on. So for somebody, especially like me, who's very creative and I like to experiment with these things, it was hard because you have absolutely no freedom to express yourself and to be a normal teenager. If we wanted to listen to music, it had to be solo. First of all, it had to be black market. We had to get it from black market. It wasn't available anywhere. And it had to be so low so nobody hears it from outside. Otherwise, it would raid you know, your house and it would arrest you. It was just an extremely suffocating environment to live in. And, you know, if you have a little bit of an access, internet didn't exist back then. I'm aging myself. But if you kind of like had a little bit of an accent like VHS tapes and you saw how other people in different parts of the world live, you know, girls who are your age, boys who are, you know, your age. And we had, we weren't allowed to, you know, just have the basic, basic human freedom it was just extreme yeah I mean you describe going to a local cafe but separated by gender so the boys sat one place the girls sat the other but um, having conversations with each other still engaging even though you were separated by gender you also describe going to house parties and events very much undercover you know Mm -hmm. so wearing wearing the hijab into um you know into a place and then changing into western clothes underneath so it all along i felt as though you were challenging the status quo in your own your own way but um very very risky stuff um in terms of what might happen to you if you happen to get caught um i think you did mention that your brother got caught and um, i'm not going to go into what happened to him now people can have a read of his story as well. But one by one, the family traveled, your siblings traveled to California. What was their route? What was their rite of passage? How did they escape? So it started with my oldest sister. I have a big age gap with my siblings. You know, my oldest sister is 11 years older than me. And she got married, I think she was 17, so I was very young. But she got married to somebody who already was living here in the United States. He was going to college here. So once she got married, she naturally moved to the United States. And then when the war happened, the war with Iraq, Iran and Iraq war, which lasted eight years, serving in the military became uh, mandatory for young men. And my mom, my, my brother is the only you know, son my parents had. And they really didn't, you know, we, we lost family members. We, we lost a lot of people we knew in the war. So my, my parents really didn't want him to serve in this war. So they sent him outside of country, you know, they, they found a way to kind of smuggle him out of the country because they wouldn't let him. And he made his way to Germany and Germany to California. Then my other sister, she decided that, you know, I talk about that sister a lot, my second sister. Yes. Uh, I talk about her a lot in the book. She decided that, you know, there was nothing else for her left back home. So she made her way you know, out of the country. And I was the last one who stayed behind. So 
my parents were going back and forth because most of their children were in the United States. So they were traveling so much because my older sister was having babies and my other sister was getting married. So life events were happening and they couldn't just stay with me back in Iran. And when my situation happened to the point that I had to escape the country and I couldn't stay in Iran anymore, it was just natural that I would join my family in the United States. But as we know, the journey wasn't easy. No, no. Um, and you touch on that um, in the book as well. But tell me, when did you meet your husband? My ex-husband and I actually kind of grew up together. We lived in the same neighborhood. Our buildings were like across, you know, each other. So we were childhood friends. His uh, sister was one of my closest friends. So we were a group of friends that were always, you know, um, hanging out together. And after school, you know, on the weekends. And uh, so we kind of grew up together. And when we got to the age that start having feelings for boys and girls, and it's like age of, uh, dating, which uh, for me was 16. Yes, 16. And he was four years older than me. He was dating somebody at a time. And we just started having feelings for each other. So we turned the friendship into a relationship. We started dating. And obviously the book covers um, domestic abuse. But um, do you recall when that switch happened, when it went from a normal, I mean, this is a love marriage, you know, so there's no one's, no one's forced to no. marry. It wasn't an arranged marriage. This was of your choosing, your choice. Were there any red flags, as they call them, that gave you cause for concern way before you got married? You know, there, there are now at this age, um, and, I'm, and I'm very active in this domestic violence and survivorship space right now. I'm an advocate and I try to help as much as I can. I try to read the stories. And now that I think back, there's always signs. But as a, you know, 17, 18 year old who's never had a boyfriend, who's never been in a relationship, and it's just very naive, you don't know what these things are. You know, the jealousy is translated to love. And, you know, the occasional push and shove is just like a sign of, well, I've seen my dad do that. So that's kind of normal. But it wasn't like so extreme to the point that I would that I would be like, okay, this person is a completely violent person. It wasn't like that, you know. He, he, there was a lot of love between us. You know, we were kids and we were just starting to have a relationship. Um, so if there were signs, they were like very. It wasn't very often, and it wasn't to the point that it was in my face. So. I would be lying if I said there was absolutely no signs, but it wasn't enough for me as, you know, a, a young, naive girl to know exactly what it was. So things turned extremely bad when I wouldn't say maybe two years after our, a year or two after our marriage. And that's when we moved in with my in-law. That's when everything very quickly changed. Obviously, you know, it's no secret that he became an alcoholic and that would completely change who he was. This is very common in domestic violence that, you know, the partner drinks a lot and becomes extremely violent. The next morning, they apologize and they are like, it wasn't me, you know, and it, it's just, uh, it repeats and it repeats and it and repeats. This is not like something that just, you know, that I only experience. I know this happens a lot. But yeah, so a year or two into the marriage, that different side of him became very, very apparent. And it was just to the point that 
I knew if I stayed, I wouldn't survive. Oh, wow. And thank you so much for sharing that with us, because I'm an advocate of domestic abuse as well, but with perpetrators and survivors of domestic abuse as well. And it's very often not just the violence, it's the other controlling and coercive behavior that happens as well. I mean, at one stage, you were locked in an apartment and not, you know, not able to leave. And it appears as though his parents were colluding with him as well. Did they see the abuse that was going on? Did they ever challenge him? No, that was one of the biggest problems. His dad had passed before we got together. So I was still in a friendship stage when, when his dad passed. And so I, in the place that we were living all together was his mom's place. And it was him, his mom and his sister. And his mom just, you know, didn't like me. She just had decided long ago that I wasn't worthy of his son. So she just didn't like me. And one of the biggest problems was that our rooms were next to each other. So my screaming and crying every night and begging, you know, for him to stop, they would hear it. They would, they knew exactly what was happening. They would see my cuts and bruises the next day. They would see my, you know, you know, fragile little body was all like to the point of I was being broken, you know, I was black and blue. And I, I have a feeling that his mom actually took pleasure in that. Because it was some sort of like, hmm, told you so, you, you know, I, I didn't want you and here you are and you deserve it. It was kind of like that kind of attitude. So there was no consequences. He could do whatever he wanted. And as I said, my whole family lived in the United States and I was the only one left back home and I was living with them. So yeah, they would leave the apartment and, you know, our, our culture and not, not culture, but a lot of things that like in, in Iran is a little more similar to the European, you know, like the little alleys, the streets, the stores, the, you know, things like that versus America. America is like so different than, you know, anywhere else in the world. So the doors were like, if you locked it from outside and you didn't have a key, you couldn't open. So they would leave me in the place and they would lock it from outside and I had no keys. There was no way for me to leave. And we lived in a high rise. So yeah, so it got to the point that his mom was doing that. His sister was doing that. So nobody was standing with me and, you know, telling him what you're doing is wrong. He was actually kind of like encouraged to continue the abuse. Yeah. I mean, there was times when your family would ring and they would monitor or supervise your phone calls. So you had no privacy to be able to even tell anybody, you know, what was going on how you were feeling, you describe holding back the tears because, you know, when you did cry, you'd make an excuse, well, I'm crying because I miss you, not crying because of what you were enduring. So all of the tactics that we hear about, like isolating, you were isolated because you had no family here. You were in their home, which is another form of isolation as well. So all of those kind of tactics that we know of in the domestic abuse field you were experiencing at that time. But why were you so resilient? And what kept you strong during those period, that period of time? He always makes me very emotional when I talk about this. But my sister, my sister, just she's been, you know, anybody who would even, you know, who would read the book or if they have, they know she is a very big character in my life. She is a force. And 
how much she's done for me. And even before she left the country, just the thought of not surviving and having this burden, this guilt put on my sister and my parent that they left me, even though it was my own decision, even though they, yeah. they begged me not to marry him and go to the States. And I just decided, no, I want to marry this man. I thought he's the love of my life. And this is forever. Even though it was my own decision, which is why I didn't speak sooner. Just the thought of putting this kind of guilt and burden on them, if I don't survive this, kept me going. And, you know, I would always, I'm a dreamer. I would always dream of something different. My family would send me pictures and videos of, I have a lot of family in the States. So my cousins and my uncle, they all like moved to the States long, long, long time. So I would see all the parties and how free they were. The way they were dressed, you know, they freely wearing makeup. They look beautiful. They're out in the park with no hijab. They are just music playing. They're dancing. They're so free. Just looking at the pictures and the videos that they were sending me, I just dreamed of a better life. And I kept keeping that hope alive no matter what I was going through. I knew that if I just lasted a little longer, that would be possible for me as well. Even though I had moments that I wanted to give up, it was it just got to a point that it was so hard that I just wanted to end it all. You know, that little glimmer of hope. I'm very lucky I bring this up all the time when I'm talking to, you know, when I'm doing podcasts or doing interviews, because I want people to know this. I'm extremely lucky. I know my privilege that I have a family that's supportive. But even if you don't have a family that's supportive, if you don't have, you know, anyone that's related to you, so you just need to speak out. So I knew that I have my family behind me, especially my sister. I knew she would do anything for me. So that little bit of a hope, even though I was ashamed that this was my decision. And at some time I thought, you know what, you deserve this because they kept telling you not to do it and you insisted on this. So this is your destiny. You got to deal with it. Even though I had those moments, I used that, that little part of me in the back of my head kept telling me that I can do better and this can get better, that I just need to last one more day, one more day, one more day. So yeah, I would say the hope of a better life. What was the catalyst that enough was enough and that you had to escape? What occurred? So I remember I had a really bad night the night before. I was brutally beaten and raped. And I was in a lot of pain the next morning when I woke up. I looked at myself in a mirror and I was maybe... I don't know, 80, 90 pounds. I don't know the, 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 how I translate to kilo, but I was very, very fragile. I was very skinny, very fragile. And my body was just broken. And I knew if I didn't do anything or say anything, it was just a matter of days that I would lose my life. I don't think my body could have handled that, you know, for longer than another, like, I don't know, week or two. So that day that, I mean... They say universe works in mysterious ways. My sister called to check on me. And the only person that was home was my sister-in-law. And she was a little easier on me because we had a friendship before. And she was the same age. So she was doing, you know, reading the magazines, listening to music in her own room. And she let me speak to my sister. She wasn't like, you know, hovering over me to see what I say. 
And because my mother-in-law and my husband were at home, I had a little more of a freedom to speak. So I took the phone to my room, to our room, and I was crying so hard. I was crying so hard I couldn't even get a word out. And my sister knew something was wrong. It wasn't just me missing. So she kept pushing. She kept pushing, talk to me, what's going on, what's wrong. And I finally told her. I told her this is what has been happening for a while. And I'm just afraid that I'm not going to be able to survive this any longer. That moment, just just telling her that within within 30 minutes, my whole life changed. So yeah, that was, I knew if I didn't, if I, if I waited any longer and if I didn't say anything, uh, the next time they called, they might hear the news that I've passed. I'm not here anymore. So that was the reason that I just, and my sister's persistence of getting it out of me. I think you're absolutely right. There is always that one person, not necessarily a family member, but that one person who you're able to speak to and let them know what's going on and be absolutely honest and open with them. So uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that earlier, that there is always that one person, whether it's, um, you know, the health visitor that comes around after you've had a child or a teacher at the school, a librarian. We've got another guest coming up soon who the only place where she wasn't escorted was the karate club. So when she would drop her children off, she would then got speaking to the owner and a couple of other women that was there. And they supported her to be able to leave her my husband. Another powerful story to tell. So your sister, what happened next? How were you able to actually leave that apartment? So I don't want to get into too much details because it's all in the book. But, uh, and it's going to, you know, take a while, but long story short, because my husband and my uh, mother-in-law weren't home, um, I came up with a story, like my sister put this plan together and came up with the story to tell the sister-in-law for her to let me out. And my parents still had an apartment in the city. So I managed somehow to, I I, uh, convinced her to let me, let me just get out. And I didn't tell her that I'm leaving her brother for good. I just kind of like created a lie that I'll be back. And I went to my parents' apartment and locked myself in. And I stayed there for many months till my parents could come back. Um, What was the journey like from Tehran to the United States? It was a very challenging few months. When I eventually escaped Iran, obviously we don't have American embassy in, in Iran because there's no diplomatic relationship between United States and Iran. So anybody who wants to get a visa or, you know, whatever they, they, they have to do, they have to go to a different country to go to the American embassy. And for us Iranians, Turkey is the closest country that we can go without a visa or Dubai, but most, mostly go to Turkey. It's cheaper. It's more convenient. So my dad took me to Istanbul in hopes of I'm going to the American embassy. I'm going to tell him, you know, my story and my whole family lives in the United States. So there's no reason for them not to let me in. And I was very naive, like all of us thinking that way. They didn't give me a visa, no matter, you know, how many times I went there and told them my story. My sister, my, my sister is married to an American man. My brother-in-law from here kept like, you know, reaching out to the senators. And even the president back then was Clinton. And writing letters to anybody, you know, in power, nothing really helped. So I got stuck in Istanbul for a few months and a lot of bad things happened. A lot of 
bad things that and that for a 23 year old girl who's never been out of country and never been alone I had to find a way to survive that finally found my way to my family but as I said a lot of things happen in me yeah and people can read that we don't want to tell everything people need to buy the book and, <laughs> um, and read that what was your impression of being in the states for the first time Ah, uh, very strange you know, United States is very different from anywhere in the world. Everything is different, you know, from, you know, as I said, I'm like, I, I because I lived here for 25 years, I forgot how like to translate the, the pounds to kilograms and, and like all these measurements are different. It's all like everything is different and it just seems like its own planet. So after I, I moved here and I started traveling the world and I go into Europe and it, Going to Europe, it brings a little bit of a feeling of home because it's a lot more similar to where, where I come from. But United States was everything was so different and it's so big. And it took me, you know, I'm again, I'm very uh, lucky that my whole family lived there. So I had yeah. like a whole support system and at least I had a little bit of a home here. But even with that, I was just like, I was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I was uncomfortable. It was just something so foreign to me. You know, you go to like, as, as, as a Iranian, you go to France, you go to England, you go to Italy. As I said, a lot of things are similar. So you're not so shocked. It took me a while. I'm not going to lie. It took, it took about a year for me to feel comfortable living here and being here and knowing that I'm going to live here for the rest of my life. So it took a while, but eventually, you know, I got used to it and I um, drowned myself in just trying to perfect the language and started working very, very early on because I wanted to take in the culture and I wanted to blend in. And I wanted to, especially as I said, I have an American brother-in-law and I was living with my sister and him. So I took everything in very, very early on because I was like, I need to learn everything and I need to immerse myself in this culture. And I need to, you know, I, I was 23. I wasn't a kid. I needed to like hurry up and stand on my own two feet. They've done enough for me throughout those few months that I was, you know, stuck uh, in Istanbul. They've done so much that I just wanted to, you know, try to be as independent as I could. So they could go back to their lives and not, you know, be worried about taking care of me. Well, how did you get into the film industry? You know, I always loved everything, everything creative. I loved uh, painting. I loved music. I loved film and theater and makeup and all these things. I loved it, fashion. Right before I left, I kind of got a little bit of a taste of, you know, how it is to be in the film industry. And I talk about that in my book as well. So after a few years, when I just started working and I kind of like was comfortable living here on my own, I decided that it was time for me to pursue what I, you know, always wanted to do. And I put myself through college. I, at age of 29, I, you know, uh, registered, enrolled in a fashion institute here in downtown Los Angeles. And I got my degree in fashion and I started little by little by little. And, you know, I'm living where it's the center of film, you know, it's a film industries in the capital. So it took a while. It wasn't overnight. It took years, but I started slowly. I interned for some bigger stylists and, you know, people who were in wardrobe and 
just little by little, I got clients that are actors and they're in the industry, they're directors. So again, I mean, I have that, that I, I'm very uh, stubborn. So I persist on the things that I, I want. I go after it and I really persist. And I stuck with it because anybody who's in this industry knows it's not easy to get into, you know, this business. It's, it's very hard. And I just, you know, stuck to my gut and I just kept going. And finally, I made it to where I completely am fulfilled. And that was my next question. It, it sounds as though you're really enjoying your job and you're really enjoying the life that you have, you have now. I do. I do. I really love what I do. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm, I love film and TV. So that's my passion. So I, I've, because I love fashion as well, I kind of found a way to combine the two. So I decided, you know, dressing the uh, actors and the directors and that was my way of being, you know, I, I've always been a little shy, so I'd never thought about pursuing acting or anything like that, but being behind the scene and like having a little part in the industry. I did, you know, wardrobe for some films and I enjoyed that process and I loved it. Uh, however, I still love it. When my book came out and, you know, with the Me Too movement, with Black Lives Matter movement, with all these things that recently had happened, you know, I, I just found my bigger passion for being, an, you know, an activist and an advocate. And what I know best and my place is domestic violence and, and women's rights. So I found that after writing the book and reading, you know, other people's stories and having other people coming to me and telling me about their stories and their experiences, and then pandemic happened. So I took advantage of that time where I had no work. There was no events, there was no, you know, movie premieres or anything like that to really focus on finding how I can be more active in this space and how I can uh, use my experience to advocate for survivors and victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse in Hollywood. So I'm trying to do as much as I can in that space right now. Oh, wow. And um, how does that manifest itself? Are you putting on events? Are you a guest speaker or a keynote speaker at events? Are you talking to other women? How does that, what does the activity look like? So it's very early stages. What I'm doing is I'm taking all the requests for speaking about my experience. So anybody like yourself or anybody that I have some survivors that have started their own podcast or they started their own magazine or anything. So I don't say no to anyone because I feel like that's the best way to speak out and to share your story and to give hope to someone. Uh, I started an Instagram page where I post everything, bits and pieces of my story and tell people that look where I came from and look where I am now to give some hope to other people. I work with a couple of organizations that help with uh, survivor immigrants. So I help them in, you know, helping these women who are trying to immigrate because of domestic violence. So starting small in my community, and hopefully I can just make this bigger and bigger and take it where I really want it to be so I can help reach survivors and victims worldwide, hopefully. Oh, you're in the industry. Is there a possibility that the book could be turned into a film or a, a series or a screenplay? I hope so. You know, 
a story behind the book that not a lot of people know. It was a script first. Yeah, because I'm in this industry, so I'm surrounded by producers and directors and actors. And a producer friend of mine um, heard a little bit of my story and he really wanted to turn this to a movie. He wanted to produce it. And he hired a, a screenplay writer and it was completed. It was a complete script. Unfortunately, after reading it, actually, we had two different screenplays uh, by two different people. You know, they change your story so much for the screen when it becomes a TV series or a movie. And you always hear people say the book was so much better. It's just because in a book, you can be completely transparent and you can speak your truth and you can say exactly how things happen. When they want to make a film or a TV, um, they have to change things because, first of all, you don't have as much time to get into all those details. And second, they have to make it a little more attractive for the viewers to keep them engaged. I just didn't feel like I need, I, I could not do the film or the TV first because that the story was being changed a lot. So I decided to put a pause on that. I said no to both of them. I said, I can't do this. I'm going to write the book first. So I can tell the story exactly how it happened. And then if somebody's interested in like exactly how it is, then we can speak and we can, you know, turn this to a movie or a TV show. And so there are some interests. We, you know, nothing concrete yet, but hopefully we can, yeah, we can make something out of it because I know it will reach a lot more people. It will reach a lot more people worldwide. Yeah, I mean, it brings me back to the book when you used to trade um, cassette tapes, used to buy them on the black market and all, and there were Hollywood blockbusters that you would get as well. So I'm just imagining um, you know, a time maybe 10 years from now, somebody is trading your cassette tape of your film with somebody else so, you know, so that they can get the opportunity to see it. That would be just amazing. The question I wanted to ask next was that, okay, all of that is on pause at the moment, but is there anybody in Hollywood that you think is worthy of playing you um, <laughs> in your film? You know, it's funny because I get this question asked a lot. I mean, there are amazing, amazing talent out there. And there are so many great Iranian actors. One of them is my really good friend. Her name is Shiva Nagar. And we always like talk about this. I'm like, you should play me in this movie, but we have to find someone that plays me when I was, you know, that age. But, you know, I just leave that to, you know, the casting director and people who are like more experienced in in, in that space. But yeah, no, I haven't really thought about that. I know there are so many amazing talents out there and uh, we won't have a problem finding someone. I'm just seeing you on the red carpet in um, an amazing outfit. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the Oscars or something like that. I'm dreaming big things for you. But I think you, you were right to get the book out there first, to tell your story exactly how you wanted it to be told before it got glamorized, you know, and, yeah. and polished and everything else. You get to tell it in its original state. When you're not working, when you're not being a domestic abuse advocate and all the other things that you're doing, what do you do to relax? Do you have any hobbies? I'd love to be physically active. So I, I just a year ago, I had a spinal surgery. So unfortunately, right now, I can't be too active. But before that, I, I love to just like, you know, it gets the not, not the anger, but everything that you are, you're bottled up inside. And anybody who's going 
through trauma or had trauma. You know, I, I started actually speaking about this because I'm also a war survivor. You know, I was six years old when the war with Iraq happened and it lasted eight years. And with the Ukraine and Russia war happening right now, and I was watching some videos online and all the sirens going on in the city and people just running for, you know, their life. It brought back so many memories and the trauma that, you know, and as a child, when you go through that, I speak about, you know, waking up the next day and going to school and your friend not showing up and then finding out that it was their neighborhood who was hit by a rocket and she's not with us anymore. Or my own cousin, you know, getting the news that he died because of, you know, a bomb hit. So that, that kind of, tra- when you have that kind of trauma and you carry it throughout life, I think like being active physically, I love to do kickboxing. So that was one of my like hiking and kickboxing and being like active. That was one of my um, outlets. These days, I just, you know, I, I watch a lot of content. I watch a lot of movies and a lot of, you know, TV shows. I've noticed there are a lot of great content there. There's something that I just watch on Netflix and it, it's called Made. It is a true story of a survivor, of a domestic survivor. So I'm trying to educate myself more and try, as I, as I said, like I, I use my free time to do as much as I can to, you know, be an advocate and to help. And there is an organization that I work with and, you know, I just read a lot of content, a lot of um, essays from the survivors and judge. <laughs> There's no better word because they call me a judge and judge like who should get, you know, the grant or who should be helped first. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. A lot, a lot there, especially our love for the production made, which was done so very, very well and talks about the minefield that a survivor has to go through just to get help around housing and benefits and so on. So I was I was delighted with the way it was, the whole production and the way it was done. And the fact that the two actresses are actually mother and daughter. I, I didn't exactly. that that's you know, it was just very, very special, very and very well received as well. So we need your production to be that kind of standard for us to accept it, so to be on that kind of standard. Great. And you know what, to that point, I just want to mention something. You know, back home in Iran, in Afghanistan, in countries like that, women have zero rights. There are no organizations. There are no nonprofits. There's nowhere you can go. If you go to the authorities and say, I'm abused by my husband, they laugh at you. They put handcuffs on you and you, they send you back to your husband. There is nowhere we can go because a lot of people are like, why didn't you just leave and go tell someone? Tell who? We have nowhere to go. So you are a property of your husband once you get married. Men have all the rights. Women have zero. So I was always at fault for leaving that situation. So one of my biggest messages when they ask me, what is your message? When I see people in, in you know countries like United States, England, Germany, countries that are a little more advance and they have these resources, but still women stay and they think it's going to get better. And they think they have nowhere to go. That breaks my heart because we have so many resources here. We have toll-free numbers. We have organized people on the phone 24 seven. There are signs that you can make in public for people to know you're in trouble. So many different things that you can just, if you, if you just speak out, if you just say something, there's so many organizations, people, volunteers, resources, government out there. 
you can get restraining order against you know your abuser. There's nothing like that back home. It's laughable. So I what I want to say is if you're in a situation like that with all the resources you have here, just know there are people in other parts of the world who do not have any of it. They don't even look at you as a human. You're a secondhand citizen. So you're privileged if you have any of these resources and please use them. Please use them. Thank you so much for delivering that message as well, because people can be put in such a situation where they feel that though they cannot utilize those resources. You know, we have lots of women here that English isn't their first language as well. Mm -hmm. So how can you convey to your neighbor, for example, that you're going through something, you know, they don't have their own money or do not have access to family money. So again, run and go where with what resource, you know, behind them, they have to leave everything they've ever known behind. And that can be the the bravest thing to do is to walk away from all of that or to run away from all of that. Nobody said it's easy. It's going to be very hard, but it's going to be worth it. It's waiting for you on the other side is so much better than what you're going through right now. And the system is not perfect. You know, we saw in that in that show made, it's not perfect. It has a lot of flaws, but still it's better than staying and risking your life or your children's life if you have, you know, kids. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember the scene when she's in a, uh, her own place. It's a temporary place. There's mold on the wall, uh, the walls that's making her daughter sick and everything else, but that was still better than having to go back to an unsafe situation. So, you know, I, I definitely hear that. We've almost come to the end and I can't believe it's over an hour already. If people wanted to get hold of your book, how can they do that? Um, the book is sold on Amazon. So you can find it on Amazon under 7,000 Miles to Freedom. That's the easiest way to get it. You can order on Barnes and Noble online. But I feel like the easiest way and everybody has access to Amazon. So they can get it there. And they can always find updates uh, on my social media, um, Naz Meknat, N-A-Z underscore M-E-K-N-A-T. That's my Instagram handle. And I post a lot of updates on my interviews, all the podcasts, all the news, uh, everything that's going on. I always post it there. So. so if people wanted to get hold of you, maybe they're another podcaster or you know, somebody wants you to be a keynote speaker at their event, the best place to get hold of you will be on your Instagram. They can DM me on my Instagram or they can email me, which is nmeknat, my initial first and my last name, nmeknat at gmail.com. That's fantastic. Thank you, Naz, for being with us um, this evening. I thoroughly enjoyed our interview. What's next for you? What's your next project? Is there another book in you? You know, I don't know yet, to be honest. Never say never. A lot of people ask what happened after, you know, because Obviously, the book ends when I arrive at the at United States. So nobody knows what how I got to where I got today. There might be there might be another book. Writing this book took a lot of my energy and time, especially emotionally. So obviously, what comes next? It wasn't the end of the story. I still got in relationships that maybe not you know were necessarily physically abusive, but I got in other you know relationships that. I saw the signs quicker and it was abusive in different ways. So I still had a lot of experiences after I got here. And as an immigrant, adult immigrant, trying to find my way in this country. So there's still a lot that I can, you know, talk about. I need a little break, but yeah, there might be another book. Right now it's Oscar season in Los Angeles. So I'm crazy with, crazy busy with clients and work, but 
at some point when it slows down. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, I wish you all the best with um, your future endeavors. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the interview. For your chance to win a copy of Naz's book, answer the following question. At the time of the interview, what prestigious event was Naz preparing for? Taking part in the competition couldn't be easier. Contact me on Instagram at lovingtheauthor and leave me a message there. Or alternatively, send me a message on my author page, which is Loving the Brothers by Pamela R. Haynes. The competition closes this Friday, so good luck and wishing you a pleasant week ahead. Please join Pamela R. Haynes for another Author to Author podcast coming soon.